and welcome to episode 59 of the Strength Ratio podcast. I'm your host, Zach Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Klachenko. And today on the show, we have from Renaissance Periodization, PhD Jason Miller. Jason, thanks so much for taking your time. I appreciate you having me. <clears throat> so uh, Jason, uh, as we just got to speak to him a little bit before the show, and, and we're going to uh, send a, a message to our own science consultant, Eric Soboliski, has almost the same pedigree as our beloved Eric Sobo. Uh, Jason uh, received his master's in exercise science from Utah State University, same as Eric. Uh, he uh, received his PhD in exercise physiology from the University of Utah and um, has gone on to work with countless athletes over almost two decades of coaching. And we have him on the show today to discuss topics such as biomechanics, programming considerations for strength and power, and also just getting to know a bit more about Jason, his history, and who's helped him become the coach and uh, wealth of knowledge that he is today. Uh, we very much, Jason, appreciated all of the wonderful talks you've done on RP+. And, and I believe RP+, is actually running three months free right now, if I'm not mistaken, for people who want to keep up with what you're doing uh, upon hearing this podcast, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I haven't heard that, but uh, it could be going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've never heard guys of RP+, Plus, uh, we can direct uh, to uh, RP+, Plus in the show notes so you can um, see what Jason's done by way of his talks in the past and perhaps ongoing into the future. Um, but Jason, we would just love to discuss... Mm -hmm. Uh, as you're going through your, uh, your advanced degrees, through the master's and into your PhD, um, if you knew that you had uh, always wanted to take these degrees and continue as a coach, um, if the career path has, or I should say a, a coach and also a contributor, I'm sure Renaissance periodization maybe wasn't on your radar at the time, but perhaps to just let us know a little bit more around that education, your expectations with it and where it's led you today. Sure. Um, my background um, is strength conditioning. Started as a college football player. Um, obviously, uh, spent a lot of time in the weight room, and had the opportunity to be a grad assistant at Utah State University, and uh, worked under a good coach there. But it was during that time that I realized I didn't like getting up at four thirty in the morning, um, <laughs> and I didn't like uh, at the time grad assistants were a little bit different. Uh, so I'd work from four thirty to in the morning until 7.30 and pretty much wall-to-wall -wall athletes. Um, I had a lot of questions too of what we were doing and why we we're doing it. Um, and that's what kind of led me more into the academic side. At the time, uh, there was a lot of emerging research and uh, you know, not, a, not the wealth of knowledge we have now, you know, like with social media and um, you know, all these different uh, resources that people are producing. So, um, you know, I went into academia with the thought of trying to figure out a little bit more about how to be a better coach uh, and then do it on my own terms, to be honest. So I didn't have to get up at 4.30 in the morning anymore. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's what led me to the academic path um, and you know, led me to be a professor. But as I was a professor, uh, I just missed coaching. I missed the application of all this knowledge that's out there. And so it's been a nice blend for me at uh, the position I'm at to be able to be a um, a weightlifting coach and be a professor so I get to relearn really and then communicate that knowledge on a regular basis. So that's kind of my history. 
Jason, when when did you first get into Olympic weightlifting as opposed to more um, like yes, no problem. Uh, like five of our first episodes, uh, Sobo was on and he had his uh, baby in the background, so we're definitely <laughs> sorry. Okay. That was my daughter <laughs> working from home uh, during COVID. Yeah, yeah, everyone is. Yeah, um, yeah. When did you first get into Olympic weightlifting? Because it sounds like it was mainly sports performance associated, correct? Correct. To begin. Uh, you know, I used it as a college athlete poorly. I wasn't taught very well. Um, you know, wasn't really aware of the sport uh, until grad school. And I had a, um, a colleague that I was working with. He was going to grad school as well. And we started a weightlifting club. And I just saw it as an outlet to, um, you know, still coach without mm. you know, a team. Um, I was doing some strength conditioning at the time as well. But, it, you know, it allowed me to to be a coach of a team and, and have my own athletes, so to speak. Uh, and so that's when it really blossomed and masters and into the PhD program uh, when I started really getting into weightlifting. And how has your, your own coaching style and, and your own coaching language evolved since those earlier days of you actively receiving those advanced degrees? And now when perhaps you're a bit further down the road, do you, still follow a lot of the same foundational principles in your teaching and instructing of the actual lifts? Or have you, like you said, with how, how information is disseminated on social media and, and, and the sharing of information being uh, so uh, vast right now, has that evolved as, as you've evolved? Sure. When I first, uh, I think like any coach, um, going back before weightlifting, over-communicated, um, and the more I learned, I wanted to communicate more. And what's kind of evolved over the years, and I, think I see this with a lot of coaches, is, um, you know, communicating less. Um, you know, coaching every rep, but not necessarily verbally. So I'm watching, I'm observing the athlete. But keeping, you know, the amount of cues, the amount of information that I give the athlete uh, a lot less than it used to be. And using more drills and movement. Uh, to, to make corrections rather than, uh, you know, assaulting them with a whole bunch of cues. Um, mm. So my coaching, you know, I would say is evolved from very, um, you know, probably overly complicated to being very, very simplistic in the last, oh, I would say, five five years or so. So it's been kind of an interesting kind of uh, journey that way is, is taking all this knowledge, all this complicated information and really making it as simple as possible and, um, you know, I, I find it interesting when I go to uh, some of these big national meets, uh, you know, the, you know, watching other coaches that have been around a while. And that's a very common um, thing you see in them as well, is that they actually communicate less than some of the coaches that are first starting out. And certainly I've, you know, no judgment there. I did the same thing when I was a, a younger coach, uh, especially the more you learn, the more you want to communicate. But um, again, the longer you do this, I think you realize less is more. Oh yeah, we we actually had Dane Miller on of Garage Strength. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Dane of or any of his, but uh, he said the same. He expressed the same thing, and, and ha- from firsthand experience, you, and I can I can very much relate with everything you're saying from the overcoaching styles to something that's more refined and simplistic <clears> over time. But you, the listeners would be amazed as we have just recently expressed with. with uh, Dane on the podcast that even on the national level, uh, there's uh, on 
competition day, you'll hear a lot of intensive uh, cue and corrections when that uh, should very well have been taken care of in the weeks and months leading up to the meets. So uh, I think it's great that we're just further drilling that point home. Yeah, as I always tell my athletes, it's like being a soccer player. You know, at a halftime, we're not going to teach you how to kick a ball. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. done. It's done. So, you know, we're beyond that at that point. We go with what we came with and, um, you know, keep it really simple. Um, Jason, before we ask uh, maybe about your technical model or some uh, biomechanics or um, more research around the lifts, do you think that sometimes it's it's actually like, I feel like there's a um, uh, graph somewhere that kind of represents this, but it's almost like you need to go down the rabbit hole and get things, make things too complicated before then you can come back and make them too simple. I feel like that's a common theme in a lot of things. Oh yeah, I think so. Um, you know, you get that excitement about something, um, you get excited about coaching and you want to learn everything you can to try to gain an advantage for athletes and uh, be the best coach you can for them. Um, and I think there's an advantage of that, of course. So you try to check mark uh, every box. Um, but then you, again, you kind of back up and realize all the information I'm learning, the athlete doesn't need to know in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think as a coach, yeah, you do, you, you uh, try to find as much education as you possible. You, you read, you learn, you never stop learning. But how you, you know, kind of as a transmitter of that information you have to really pare it down. And remember, you're talking to an athlete that could care less about some article you read last night. They just need to know how to move a bar better. So absolutely, I think that's a natural progression uh, for a coach. And, you know, I found in the last, uh, you know, era of YouTube um, is I have to talk the athletes down to um, many times because they want to you know, be like some athlete on YouTube or they heard some new thing or new drill. Um, you know, they, they need help understanding that that drill may not be appropriate for them uh, or that's not a skill that they need to work on. Uh, and so I spend a lot of time, especially with newer athletes, until they kind of figure it out of talking them off the, you know, talking off the cliff, so to speak, with some of these YouTube videos or some of these, you know, IG posts, they see or whatever it may be. Now, when you take your advanced uh, advanced your, your higher education and, and your time spent lecturing and kind of layer that on top of Jason what perhaps you were coming because um, you know the, at least in the states we we don't have what other countries have in Europe and Asia which would be like the PhD equivalent of say like a weightlifting degree is did you find that when you applied aspects of uh, you know your higher physiological understandings or, or biomechanical understanding to what you were seeing just in everyday programs or programs that were made public, whether it was in a book that you purchased or something you saw online, that there were common errors being made between the uh, the application that you wanted to learn more of and what you were learning on more of the uh, you know structured science side of things. Yeah, I think there's some, in any sport, you kind of have those, um, you know, it's work for me or a successful one time, you know, on the coaching side. So you get coaching literature that's more of, um, you know, anecdotal and, and you know, from that perspective. Um, and a lot of times those coaches had tremendous athletes and so everything worked. And so it seems like that's the way to, you know, to train all athletes. And you see some of those, uh, 
those common themes in some of these higher level books uh, on the coaching side. And on that academic side, um, you know, you see a lot of lab type of things and controlled environments. And uh, at times I feel like nitpicking uh, some of the biomechanics, uh, you know, trying to find a, this two degrees of movement that at the knee that's supposedly make a difference. And, you know, I, I think it's on, off, on another plane uh, and, the, the, you know, where a coach should land is somewhere in the middle. Um, mm. You know, be able to take that information from the research literature and be able to say, okay, well, this was in a lab. Uh, this was nitpicking. This was maybe not practically significant, even if it was, you know, the statistically significant, what everybody likes to talk about, and which is, of course, important. But, you know, a lot of times when you look at the data, it's not practically significant. And then on the other side, you're looking at coaching literature, and it's, you know, from a perspective, one successful coach who already had a stable of high-level athletes, um, you know, that's probably not going to work for the, you know, the kid that walks in your door and is just trying to learn how to do weightlifting the first time. So, again, it's it, it, what the NSCA used to call bridging the gap. I don't hear that talked about as much. Um, but when I was a grad you know, assistant, that was a big phrase to utter is, you know, we're trying to bridge a gap between the research literature and the practical application. Um, and I think, you know, with a lot of the social media and YouTube, um, you know, that's trying to fill that gap, but you're also getting somebody's filter of that information. So, you know, building your own filter essentially um, and taking that research literature and understanding what is important and then looking at some of that coaching literature and, and appreciating that your athlete is not the athlete that that coach worked with, um, you know, is the job of a modern coach essentially. And were there any key mentors or influencers who helped you, uh, you know, better connect that bridge for your athletes, whether it was someone in the, uh, uh, the field who was a bit ahead of you, who had more time bridging the gap, or perhaps a weightlifting coach who uh, some of our, our audience may know? You know, I really didn't work with a specific weightlifting coach. Um, you know, I've, I've read a lot of literature you know, I really enjoy, of course, uh, Catalyst information they put out. I think, it's, you know, his approach of there isn't one way. Um, you know, you got to understand the athlete and, you know, adjust your coaching style as opposed to just forcing them into some you know, way of doing things, which I, you know, I think was a common theme there for a while. So we have to adopt some sort of style. You know, that's the only way to do things because some athletes had success with that. Um, but in terms of strength conditioning, uh, you know, I had the opportunity when I was at University of Utah. We had the Olympic ski team up the road, and I interned up there with a couple great strength coaches. Uh, just got to see them, you know, do a really good job of taking what was the best technology at the time and the research literature, you know, doing journal clubs, and then going on the floor with the athletes. Uh, you're talking about athletes that are, you know, winning gold medals and going to Winter Olympics. Um, so we're talking about really high-level athletes. So to see that model, uh, I think, was very helpful, um, you know, and the approach they took to, you know, doing their own research, um, being mindful of the data they were collecting and what they could do with it, even if they never published it, but how it could help the athletes later on down the road. So um, that was a great model for me, probably one of the most beneficial things um, I did as a coach. Uh, and if there was a mentoring experience, uh, that was probably the closest thing I had. The rest of it was just me, you know, reading, learning, 
seminars and then coaching, taking on the floor and a little bit of trial and error um, and adjusting my style from there. Awesome. And can you talk uh, um, now perhaps to, you know, you've, you've gone through the, uh, uh, you've, you've seen your education through to its highest degree. You uh, dabbled in um, lecturing, um, but had missed the coaching side of things. Between that uh, time spent lecturing and, and where you are now working with RP, were you uh, seeking anything out in particular to, uh, you know, hone your craft? Um, and if that transition from uh, lecturer to w- where you are now with RP was from uh, one thing to the next, can you maybe just explain what it is that you now do on, on your everyday? Sure. I mean, I love to read. Um, my wife makes it because I don't really read for leisure. But my leisure reading is a textbook. Um, you know, I knew I'd read research literature. Uh, you know, I got before this thing with uh, the pandemic kicked off, I printed off a big pile to take home with me. So, I mean, that's, I, I like to read a lot. Um, again, think, keep it in mind, uh, you know, that practical application of this information, but um, and a lot of reading, a lot of textbooks. Uh, when I was in grad school, that same colleague I mentioned, we always had a joke of a five to one ratio. So we go down to the library. This is when people went to libraries. And, uh, you know, we take one book back, get five more. Uh, so, you know, I, I really enjoy spending as much time as I can um, finding new books, finding new papers, whatever it is. Uh, and then if there's some interesting seminars, you know, I love to hear information from Dr. Isertel, of course, and all our PT. Um, you have you have people that are doing a great job of bridging the gap. There are others, of course, um, but that's basically what I do to feed myself now. Um, you know, it's been a it's been interesting to watch the lit- the research literature and how it's evolved as well. Um, from uh, you know everything was um, I wouldn't say everything that's a little overstatement, but a lot a lot of the studies were with untrained participants, and now realizing that uh, that information maybe isn't applicable. Uh, to some of the athletes we're working with. And so you're seeing a little bit more of an uptick in uh, research literature done with people who are actually trained. So and that's been, you know, uh, exciting that somebody who likes to read research literature is to see some of this literature that might be actually useful for people who are beyond those initial stages of training. I see. So, so and now you're taking all of that, uh, you know, the passion that you have for research um, in the field and, and the time you spent coaching and you're working exclusively with Renaissance periodization with training and with diet, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I'm still a professor full time. Um, oh, okay. And then coach, you know, the weightlifting team we've had now for 10 years and then I do RP on the side. So, um, you know, pretty busy. <laughs> so, so Jason and in, in starting to kind of bridge this gap, as you said, what are some, because I find that a lot of uh, weightlifting is definitely more of like um, uh, reading or looking at other coaches. And then that's how more coaches form as they see what some of the best in the, in the field are doing. They learn from them. They kind of get their own spin on it. Um, and although there is probably, there is a lot of research and literature out there now, I still find it's not as much of a um, mainstay in Olympic weightlifting currently for people. Uh, 
as right now, like hypertrophy is like all about evidence-based field, I think. So what are like, I guess more from a, we can start maybe with like a technical model uh, or just technique. Are there any any new research or literature that could help inform technique on, um, on a lifter? And then perhaps later we can go into more like some programming variables, strength and power variables, but yeah, just starting with technique. Sure. It's interesting when you read these uh, technique articles, they all come down to one thing, keep the bar close. That's it. You know, keep the bar close and keep it moving vertical. I mean, it, that's, you know, every one of these articles I read, that's, a, that's the summary. So it's, it's as simple as you would think it is. It's just as a coach, then how do you help the athlete bar close um, and then keep it moving vertically? Um, one study comes to mind was, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was the Japanese and looking at the Indonesians or I don't remember. But, was it with um, female I believe? What's that? I, I think if I remember correctly, it was with female weightlifters specifically. Correct. It's pretty high level lifters too. Correct. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then looking at the horizontal displacement and basically trying to tease out if banging the bar was better than for brush style. Um, but you know, all these studies going to come down to the same thing is keep the bar close. Mm-hmm. You hear uh, very often people will say, well, do you bang the bar? Or do you brush the bar? Or do you teach like how the Chinese teacher, do you do more like a Russian style? And it's so funny to kind of hear these different, uh, categorizations when in fact everyone has the same goal yeah and you know these styles like the chinese style you have to realize when you look at some of the body types yeah chinese like lifters is. that you know long torso short femur well sure then you could do a catapult but if you you know i have a lifter who has extraordinarily long legs and very short torso um he really should have been a distance runner but obviously his hip flexors are three, you know, three sizes too small. Um, you know, his style is not going to fit a catapult. So, you know, I, that's where as a coach, when you're disseminating all this information off of YouTube or whatever it may be. Um, and then that's why I like my Greg stuff actually is, you know, trying to fit again, the athlete to um, the style for them and not trying to force a style on them just because it's popular. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The one thing I'll add too with the research literature is that they do, in terms of technique, because this shouldn't surprise either, is the faster you can get it on the bar or you can get the more successful you are on the snatch. So, you know, if you want the two highlights of the research literature, that's it. Keep the bar close and get low and fast. And so this seems like it's an area where a lot of the um, anecdotal has, has really merged with the research uh, and, and almost 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, in the research literature, oftentimes is used as a weapon. Um, you know, I can prove this, I can prove that. Research literature doesn't really prove anything. Um, but when it comes to area of technique, the technique, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward if you look at the stack. Those are the commonalities of all these studies. The rest of it's, you know, nitpicking two degrees of range of motion at the knee. It's like, okay. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, um, I mentioned this actually in the podcast with Dane Miller as well, um, about uh, this like concept of small world models versus large world models mm-hmm. where like the lab is a small world where you're isolating all things but that doesn't always apply to the complex and that's just like exactly what you said it's like well the two degrees you know practically that's not really gonna 
change anything because there's no way you can really control that in a, in a large world complex setting. Yeah, and you could have so many variables that fit into that difference. I mean, you could add your research study with, you know, short femur, long torso people, and then that's not really going to be applicable to somebody who doesn't have that body type. And you don't see that reported very often in research literature is what are the body type individuals that were doing some of these technique studies. When you have a lifter come in and you are about to teach them the lift, I'm, I'm sure your, your glossary is quite, uh, you know, universal among all of the athletes being able to relay and communicate in a shared way um, and, and take that in in a shared way. Um, are, are you, though, doing any types, because uh, you've mentioned, like, the lifter's uh, anthropometrics, are you, are you doing anything to perhaps evaluate or screen a lifter before introducing any cues right off the bat? Or do you start, for instance, with like, here's power position and here's how to safely overhead squat? Yeah, I have some um, common cues for the, you know, the movements in general. I'm a three-position person. Um, I have some funky external cues. So instead of using, you know, internally rotate your elbow, I use grill arm. And, you know, that's an external cue that helps them set their knuckles and set their elbows without having to, you know, point out those specific joints. I think that's a helpful way to approach some of these more complicated things is to use the external cues. But as they get going, um, we certainly start messing around a little bit with their, um, you know, technique in relation to their, you know, mobility challenges they may have at the moment, certainly addressing those challenges, but um, also their uh, anthropometry and what their, you know, torso to femur ratio is. Um, and I think you know, coaches done it for a while. You do that naturally without, you know, maybe saying that that's what you're doing. Like, you know, I'm not looking at their torso super long, so I'm gonna do this. It's just something as a coach, you know, that is a style change that's gonna be best for them. So, you know, I, I tend to start with the basics, and then as the lifter starts, um, you know, actually get some metal in their hands, you know, make those adjustments as we go, uh, and certainly as we start working with the stick. Uh, you can see some of those mobility issues that need addressed, whether it's the shoulders or T-spine or ankles or whatever it is. Hmm. And if we were to, um, I don't know if this is a good framework, like if someone is um, more of like a long leg, like long legged person, short torso, you would say this, this uh, movement variation really lends itself to teaching them what I want because, because of their anthropometrics. Sure. I, th I think a lot of that goes to the setup. Um, even if you look at some of the high-level uh, lifts that are missed, it's usually a setup issue or a loss of that initial setup as they move the bar off the floor. Um, and so we're looking at, you know, somebody has that uh, long leg, short torso. It's trying to find them a position that they can set up as properly as possible um, and obviously try to achieve that you know, back angle we'd like to see, you know, where somebody has a long torso they're going to have a really easy time setting up over the bar. So it's a lot of it's trial and error, um, you know, not just with their leg length, but how long are their arms, is the, you know, compensatory to the leg length, or they have really short arms too. Um, you know, that's going to obviously change the way they set up. Um, and so I trace everything back to the setup a lot of times. And if we can get that right, then they should move a little bit better off the floor and, and keep the bar close to what we're, you know, we're looking for, of course. 
Now, Jason, when it comes to your programming, are you one to prefer, because you mentioned that as you've learned more, you've become a little bit more um, concise uh, with your cueing, but would you say that your programming uh, has followed a similar trend where, you know, while you're in school and just experimenting on your own and working with so many athletes, you see all the different types of exercises that one could perform to perhaps become just a a bit more robust in their, their, their development and, and how strong their foundation is. Do you keep things simple with just the main lifts and some specific derivatives to the lifts or are you one in your programming who likes to give them some you know, variations of bodybuilding and uh, other quote unquote accessory work throughout the year to some extent? Yeah, I'm big into um, doing some GPP work. You know, that's the one of the cool trendy things to say, right? Um, yeah. We have all these personality transformation and realization and accumulation, right? Um, but basically it's the same thing where you have a volume cycle. And I don't see this, uh, or at least the weightlifters I see many times uh, don't embrace this this cycle of doing, you know, higher rep steps, doing more of the bodybuilding, uh, taking the time to do that. Um, many of them try to pack in competitions and, you know, when you move them away from the lifts, they, you know, they fight that a little bit. Um, but I heard a great quote from um, um, Hendrick Ferris's coach, Dr. Pierce, basically said, you know, he, and I'm paraphrasing this, is, you know, you learn the technique and then you just get stronger everywhere. And part of getting stronger everywhere is having those bodybuilding cycles, doing some tissue prep mm. before you drop some heavy loads on somebody. So, yeah, I do believe in um, doing some you know, if you look at the Russian literature and even the Chinese literature, if you want to, you know, cite some of these teams, they do GPP cycles. Um, I think it's laughable at times. People freak out when they see some of these Chinese lifters that are shredded. It's like, you know, that's something that's an oddity weightlifting, and that should be, you know, the norm. Um, somebody has a a, a body like a bodybuilder. Um, and so, in terms of the cycling, absolutely, I, you know, I'm a big believer in doing some of these bodybuilding cycles. And then for the athletes in terms of their progression over time and the variations of the, the uh, weightlifting movements early on, I keep it pretty simple. And so we do three positions quite a bit. So I use the pocket, you know, uh, Glenn Penway's old terminology, you know, the pocket, below the knee, um, I know Cal Strengths does this stuff as well. And then from the floor. So once the athletes can master those positions, then I do move them towards block work, which I'm a huge fan of. You just have to be careful with it if you have a hip dominant person. But block work, um, you know, every kind of position around the knee, below the knee, above the knee, what I call top down. So stand up and stretch to it uh, or paused or what people call stop cleans or stop snaps. But stopping at the below the knee and the above the knee position, um, you know, from the research literature, if you want to cite some of it. Is uh, you know any coach that's done any sort of coaching for a long period of time, you know when that bar goes on the knee is when we're most at the uh, disadvantaged position. So getting stronger around the knee, either above it, below it, or transitioning around it, is going to really help the athlete. So you know the further along the athlete goes, uh, the more variants I use to help them get better around the knee. Um, I think most athletes, you know, in terms of the second pole. They get really good at that in a hurry. Um, 
but learning how to transition that bar around is one of their, their great challenges. And of course, when we're trying to keep the bar closed, uh, it's keeping that you know, position held off the floor as they transition around the needle so the bar can stay closed. So, you know, programming wise, it goes from simple to more complex the longer the athlete lives. Um, I actually don't like some of my athletes early on to do power work. Um, you know, I find they can't transition from one pattern to the next very well. Uh, if they have been powering for a while already, if they've come from CrossFit or something else, um, you know, having them do more power work makes it more difficult to, for them to, you know, get to that full squat work or squat clean or squats and whatever you want to call it. Um, so it just depends on the athlete in that respect. But, you know, I do start simple and go to complex over time. I really like Louis Simmons, you know, approach to powerlifting with, you know, using the variant or so. To, to push numbers and then going back to the basic lifts at some point, um, you know, closer to competition, uh, you know, to, to, you know, test the maxes of those lifts after hitting higher numbers in a variant. And I found some successes doing that as well. So, you know, just trying different things, um, different coaches that maybe even out of weightlifting and, and these principles of, you know, for the most part held pretty well. We've, uh, along the latter lines of what you mentioned with Louie and testing, uh, Kyle and I have been talking a, a bit recently about how with the lifts with snatch and with clean and jerk, it, it becomes a bit harder to make, for instance, uh, projections uh, to theoretical maxes that a lifter could hit uh, given the complexity and nuance of the technique relative to, say, um, the test that someone might receive and projections off of uh, say a multi-rep effort or like a RPE seven or eight single effort in powerlifting for the bench squat or deadlift. Have you spent time thinking about this considering what might the lifters actual potentials or projections be when you kind of strip back uh, the, the more like psychological aspects that may be holding them down or um, you know, perhaps minor uh, uh, nuances and technique at, at heavier loads based on just what you're seeing throughout the cycle? So taking the RP like a, like a nine, I'm trying to guess what their max is, is that what you're, is that what you mean? I think so. What, what I think the interesting thing that I've been thinking about a lot is how you can use uh, like weak and within cycle feedback to adjust for long-term. So being able to have some sort of like, continuous feedback to it's like so for i know in powerlifting the easy example is like you might do like an rpe8 and then if that's consistently going up you would then raise your max by two percent or something like that based on the rpe or so just having more like continuous feedback in the system so that you can have more iterations to to progress things as opposed to waiting 12 weeks and then testing if that makes sense yeah yeah of course that's interesting um you know, I definitely use RPE and reps and reserve when appropriate for like uh, squatting. It depends on the type of squat work. Um, use RPE a lot with power work. But in terms of for making projections off of those numbers, um, it would be mostly with my eyeballs. To be honest with you. I don't have a formula for that. If somebody, you know, is supposed to be at an RPE of nine uh, for a lift and they've been, let's say, you know, snatching uh, 110 kilos doing that. And the next week, it's a, it's a nine, but it's at a 120 kilos. 
you know, obviously we've made some progress, but I don't have a, a formula or, you know, any sort of mathematical projection model um, to do that. I just use my eyes quickly. And um, just uh, just because I was interested that you mentioned it, could you uh, expand more on on what you were talking about uh, around Louis Simmons, around like having potentially maxing out variance to the lift, and then as you get closer, transitioning into the actual lifts, and how you think about programming that in a, a, a cycle or in in a mesocycle, and then in like linking those together over time. Yeah, I think any opportunity the athlete has to. Um, you know, feel the weight. I think there's some value in that. And it's, you know, may not even be um, something physiological It's certainly neurological, but, you know, finding the timing that it may take to move a load and just having that confidence that they can do it uh, is a powerful thing. And so, you know, some of these variants allow for that, um, allow, allow the athletes to take a chance a little bit. Um, and if they have a mental block about the lift, you know, be able to do it in a variant format uh, and see that they can actually move the bar and catch it you know, again, it's a valuable experience for them. And so when they go to the, you know, the, the competition list, so to speak, uh, closer to a meet, um, they should be, you know, have that extra confidence they can do it. And I've seen this played out over and over again with the variants, um, you know, being maxed out earlier on in a training cycle. Um, you know, part of the weightlifting programming, um, you know, is, is doing some sort of max out as we get closer to competition. Um, but I find that if you start doing that too early, much like powerlifting, um, the athlete gets stale, right? And they start to get beat up, um, where, you know, these variants don't beat them up quite as bad, especially if they're not being, you know, pulling the ball off the floor or whatever it may be in the variant that's being set up, um, I think allows for them to preserve their bodies a little bit. And also again, creates that challenge for them to hit some new numbers. And then when they get to the competition lifts, they're in a better position confidence-wise to see success. So um, I was just thinking about this as, as you were speaking. So if we were to look at like, uh, you know, we were talking about the GDP phases or the incorporating hypertrophy work, that might look like more of an accumulation uh, cycle. Um, and RP has a ton of information on that, maybe like a four-week buildup. There, may, there are obviously other ways you could do that. But if we're thinking about this phase after we've done GPP and we were rotating in some more of these variants, what do you think about and how the cycle structure looks in terms of like, are you rotating these variants every week? Is it every two weeks? Um, Because one thing I've actually uh, experimented with, and this is funny kind of coming from Louie and it's from um, Joe Kent's tier system as well is is every two weeks rotating those lifts, having one day that's more of that max effort day, just like Louie, and then having the other day that's more of the, the speed day. But by rotating, you can stay, stay at these higher percentages potentially for longer. Okay. Is that something that you, you've played with or is that totally, you'd be like, eh, I don't really recommend that. Oh, no. I mean, you mentioned Joe Kinn as well. You know, I love the tier method. Um, you know, one of the easiest ways to organize training, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, overlaid with Louie, like you mentioned, it's a that's a lot of what my programming is. Um, the old high-low system, of course, <clears throat> and then working in these variants. Um, you know, in terms of the intensities that can be maintained, um, obviously, with you know, when we're talking about Louie, you have to be mindful of you know some of the exogenous help, yeah. uh, and so you know, in terms of how much an athlete can take, even with a high-low strategy. 
I mean, you're talking about one day a week when they can really hit a higher percentage, depending on where you are in the cycle. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, going high, low speed, and then, you know, um, I, I don't think, I think most people would, would probably program that way anyway. They do like a maximal day and a speed day and then, you know, repeat the cycle later on in the week. So, um, you know, I would recommend that absolutely, um, you know, in order to preserve the athlete's health. You, you see a lot of people trying to max out all the time and they may get away with that for a week. But the, you know, when I've tried different models, um, and it, you know, it's not shocker that you have about one week that you can do something like that. And then, you know, you see a significant drop off in performance um, as fatigue mounts. I mean, it's just that balance. And, you know, if you follow Mike Zotel, you know, the, the stimulus fatigue um, balance, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a mill gas model or the fitness fatigue model, whatever you want to use, it's the same thing over and over again. Uh, it's just managing, you know, how much fatigue accumulation is occurring with the stimulus that you're trying to create and finding that blend at the right time uh, of the cycle uh, and then exposing all those fitness gains, hopefully with a little loss in them uh, as you scale back in a tapering phase. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's simple programming, um, but it has to be, you know, well done in terms of the phases from phase to phase uh, and then from day to day, you know, macro all the way down your micro cycles, of course. So. Um, I think a lot of that, honestly, is trial and error and understanding that, you know, athletes uh, respond differently. You mentioned Dane. I read his uh, um, article on, you know, these athletes at Worlds that can max out the day after, you know, they compete and how some athletes can tolerate those higher volumes and others can. And that's, you know, something as you go through these accumulation cycles as well that you have to be mindful of is some of these athletes can tolerate more volume. And so you can push them a little harder than other athletes you know, have three male athletes in particular, they're pretty fragile. Uh, if I mm. put too hard, they'll break very quickly, even on a high-low scheme. So, you know, looking at, you know, what they can tolerate in a week, I might have to have, you know, I can have that high day, but those other days are going to have to be really low in order to, to allow them to recover. Um, and your everyday lifter, uh, you know, one thing I learned early is the outside world has such a profound effect, right? I mean, you know, you may train for two hours, but if that athlete isn't eating, um, you know, one athlete comes to mind, he probably had the, the talent and he had a total that was creeping up on qualifying for, you know, a Pan Am team. Um, but he had just opened a gym and he didn't eat. And he, no matter what I did and tried to coax him to do, he could just, he wouldn't take care of himself from, you know, in terms of his recovery. So he could snatch 165 kilos, but, you know, getting him to clean and jerk 200 was, was very, very difficult. And that was just because of the outside, you know, the outside stressors and uh, his inability to recover properly. So, and this, this coaching thing, that's one of the reasons I like it uh, is, you know, you can read, read textbooks and it seems very simple, but in reality, there are so many variables that you have to manage as a coach uh, and understanding what you're weak in. And certainly mine was sports psychology, um, you know, and, and trying to find where you can shore up some of your weaknesses. I think that's the, the, the challenge and the joy in being a coach, um, mm -hmm. you know, realizing you have a lot of variables that you have to manipulate both with yourself and with the athlete. Um, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, I, I think that's one of the more, uh, to me, fascinating parts. It's actually what the, the part of the process that I enjoy most. We've had some of our national level lifters have been training with us for over five years and mm -hmm. to see perhaps how things that you may not, that you could not read in a textbook um, have a very uh, 
profound and important consideration for the long-term evolution of an athlete. For instance, if there's something that they enjoy and they can't really explain why they like it or why a cue works, but it works for them, you just kind of figure out how to make it work in the context of what you're doing while making sure the framework is well supported with what, you know, will, will hopefully and reliably work. Um, but, and for those who uh, haven't really heard of, you know, high, low, what, what Jason's explaining there is just kind of spreading the, the stressors out throughout the week and providing different stressors rather than maxing out all the time. And, and we agree this is a very big problem that very young weightlifters take. Um, this might be influenced by social media largely. And I, I do think uh, Greg Knuckles uh, said it well once in a quote. He's like, could I run a Bulgarian method drug-free? Sure, but maybe for a month and then I would deload right away. Um, so there's context for all of this. And that's just really something that takes a, a coach and athlete's time and with a lot of trial and error. Um, uh, one um, thing, Jason, I wanted to ask you, and I believe it was actually uh, James Hoffman who commented on this. Uh, we've had him on the show a few times is um, when you think of a weightlifter, like getting in their free throws, so to speak, getting in their reps. Um, so one thing that Dane Miller picked up from uh, uh, Dr. Bondarchuk was that, um, because Dr. B thought that, uh, you know, sports specificity was so important to where a lifter should be doing the full lifts every day. Um, like they, they need to practice their sport and, and not saying that they should go heavy every day, but they should be practicing their skill every day. Um, do you, uh, have a certain mindset around, uh, technical considerations and how you count that towards total weekly volumes? For instance, I know one thing that James had to uh, a commentary he had and i know he uh, actually well i'm not really sure his complete weightlifting involvement at, at present um but i know he's worked with tons of athletes but one thing that he was curious about was how um, weightlifters approached technique work and how that contributed to their potential total fatigue for instance like um a, a weightlifter doing light work that at the end of the mesocycle is like a you know 80 percent power snatch that's not really technique work you that, know that's actually one thing i was gonna i think would be interesting to point out is when we say high low like what's the low that's what kind of what i'm asking yeah what's, yeah like is 40 percent a good low day or is 60 percent okay I think yeah that'd be interesting that's a good question i mean when you think of um this is one thing going all the way back to the NSCA textbook years ago um, before it's been revised a few times um, is I was at our time with the low days myself was, you know, you would do like, I remember the old textbook was, you know, you do five RM um, you know, one day and then the next day you would do 75% of that. And, you know, my question was why, you know, why not just rest? Right. Um, and so trying to understand what the, the low day is really helpful for, I think Louis did a good job of, um, you know, as, as maximal and speed days is trying to provide some guidance to that. Um, and so, you know, on my, my low days, um, I want the athlete to have a load that they can move with quality bar velocity. And I don't have them on a Tendo unit to do that or, you know, whatever new device is out now. Um, it's more of an eyeball test, but I want them to be able to move the bar, um, you know, with that velocity piece. Uh, Cause we've seen the research literature, you know, in terms of strength and in terms of power production, you know, it's a two piece and just the equation itself. It's a, it's two pieces. It's both force and velocity. So you can build power by moving a bar quickly, which is, you know, why Louis came up you know, with these ideas of maximal and dynamic where he recycled it. And so, you know, when looking at an athlete, it, 
is more RPE driven many times. Um, it, it can't be light and it shouldn't be light enough that obviously you're gonna have altered techniques. So if you're trying to do 50% of your clean, uh, you know, it may not be an effective way to do technique work, but it needs to be light enough where the bar velocity then is maximized. And so in terms of like percentages, um, if you look at the old Russian literature, if you trust that literature, the old Soviet sports review, you know, they hung around in the high seventies quite a bit. And I think that's a good range to be on, on those technique days. And that's more of my opinion and just more watching bar velocities over the years. Um, you know, and it, it also is mixed in again with these higher intensities. So they have these higher and low days. Um, there may be times though, where you have more of an 80% um, and the high low isn't quite as drastic. And so, you know, you might be working at 87 and a half one day and then 82 and a half in a different variant the next day. Um, and you, you know, it asked me about, you know, how often I rotate these exercises and I am, you know, one that's in that mode of every two weeks, we change the, the stimulus as well, which I think helps with that monotony, uh, and also helps with that recovery as well mentally. And then also just the movement patterns themselves. So again, there's a lot of rotation that can go on both with percentages and uh, variety. And I've, I found over the years that variety is, is probably more powerful than rotating the percentages in terms mm. of results. And there's a few research pieces of research literature that support that, not with weightlifting, just weight training. Um, but it's a, it's a powerful tool when used correctly early on, you know, you're rotating exercises every two weeks for a newbie. That's not going to be a, a smart thing to do, but uh, for more advanced athletes, uh, I like a lot of variety in their routine. And I think that you know helps with that high, low scheme as well. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, two questions that actually uh, popped up in my head off of that was one around, um, you talked about like 50% would alter the technique. And I feel a lot of, um, this is more from sports performance, but of course, for power training, maximal intent. How much for weightlifting do, do you think is over time merging technique with maximal intent, but in the beginning, potentially focusing more on the timing and rhythm of the movement um, as they learn? Because I, you know, in the beginning, someone can't really put maximal intent into something because they're not, they're just going to do whatever they can because they don't know the technique um, versus uh, really teaching timing and rhythm and over time having that timing and rhythm increase. Does that hopefully I'm uh, well, sure. explaining? Of course, you yeah. tell an athlete uh, you know, early on, they'll pull a the bar the same, you know, whether it's 50% or 90%, right? And so um, their technique is bad. You know, if you think about a clean, you know, like a clean, the bar is floating up in the air and landing on them, right? They have like bar crashes. They haven't learned how to meet the bar. Um, certainly more advanced athlete gets, they can work in the, small, the lower percentages and still get some technique work out of it. Um, so I would agree, you know, early on, you know, athletes, might actually, once they get some basic technique down, um, you know, for them to go up and down the percentage ladder is going to be a little bit more challenging for them. Um, just because over time you learn how to work with, you know, 50 or 60% on the bar, if you need to learn how to meet the bar where it's at, uh, where that mm-hmm. athlete has no idea and they'll pull the bar with the same force every time. Um, so absolutely, you know, it depends on, you know, the athlete's current state of training, uh, is definitely going to influence, the type of programming. Mean, I think that's the thing over and over again, when you look at some of the uh, programming ideas that are put out there is, is you know, always have to go back to who was the program originally for, um, mm. you know, I've been reading some of these great texts from uh, ultimate athlete concepts. 
you know, like the old super training and, you know, all these books, those are great books. I mean, it'll take you five weeks or five years to figure out what they said. Right. <laughs> um, I, I remember reading a book on a flight across the country and I read two pages, you know, just sitting there looking at these things, but you have to understand those were for elite athletes. Um, yeah. You know, and Dr. Bondarchuk worked with elite athletes. I love his data. It's fantastic stuff. But if you try to apply that to, you know, a high school kid or anybody that doesn't have to be necessarily biological age, but, you know, training age, that's very young. It's not going to work out very well. It's, and if anything, it's overkill what they actually need. So um, I think that's an important consideration with a lot of these training plans and trying to figure out what's too low or what's too high is who were the athletes that, you know, worked with that original program. Um, I'm in an NAI school. And unfortunately, we don't have a full-time strength coach. So, you know, you see this play out quite a bit. You know, I'm going to take Penn State's strength conditioning program and use it for my team. And yeah. That's a different athlete, right? And the different type of programming that um, the athletes in any high school are going to need, you know, it's, it's not going to fit that Penn State program. So um, I think that's an important consideration that oftentimes is overlooked when programming and, and some trying to arrive at these these percentages. Is, you know, we got to fit it to the athlete. and that a lot of times just takes a good observation from the coach to figure those things out. Mm. There's an art to coaching, right? I mean, I think every, you know, I see all these apps and I like apps and I think they're great. But at the end of the day, you're not, you're not going to be able to replace, you know, the, the ability of a coach to, you know, a good coach to make changes on the fly. And, you know, that's, that's something that um, as a coach, you can only get from coaching. So, you know, you learn, you learn, you learn, and, but then you got to spend time on the floor and that, you know, the idea of 10,000 hour rule, you know, that whole thing. Um, it's not a bad guidance piece though, right? It just kind of highlights the importance of spending a lot of time coaching. And so, you know, even getting a certification on a weekend for three hours, you know, that's, that's not the same as spending 10,000 hours on the floor or watching athletes lift and making mental notes or actual physical notes, you know, as you're doing this. And over time you build yourself a nice little library. And, and that's really what like Dr. Bondarchuk and these, uh, these coaches over time have done. And that's mm. why they were successful. Yeah, exactly. Probably a little um, topic, but <laughs> that's just an observation. Zach, Zach has a question, but I want yeah, I, I was going to say Zach. Zach has a question, but I wanted to to get in one more. Was when we were talking about variation, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't there some literature now saying that potentially more movement variation actually uh, helps with motor learn learning to a greater extent? Where actually, if you if you're keeping things similar too long, it's actually harder to learn. Yeah, and it goes back to that argument about um, youth athletes, right? I mean, do we specialize them early, or do yeah. we let them? explore their movement and um I, th I think most that are experts in that area um would say you know do more uh, as much motor uh, exploration as possible um even though people point to the early specialization in some athletes you know those athletes probably were going to be high level athletes anyway um and a lot of times what we don't see is all the athletes that burned out or didn't work out when they were specialized really early I and mean, we see this on weightlifting right you'll you'll see junior champions that disappear um, whether it's because of injury, because of overuse injuries or, you know, too much too early um, or just specializing in weightlifting. And I, when I have younger athletes that are even are good weightlifters, I encourage them to, you know, do speed training, do these other type or do sprint work uh, through their track team or whatever it is to develop these other motor patterns. So absolutely the research literature that we do have um, would support that. And I think just, you know, general observation data, 
um, and talking to coaches that have been in the field a long time, I think that holds up pretty well in any sport is, you know, more variety early, the better. Yeah. And it's, it's even amazing how in weightlifting, subtle variety can, can go a long way. One of my, uh, lifters, uh, has, has been working a lot on preventing his, his shoulders from getting behind the bar once he clears the knee, uh, despite what, you know, is, is a pretty strong setup in first pull. Um, so there was a ton of work, for instance, like at or just above the knee, mm-hmm. but it actually really started to click for him. And, and we saw a, a lot of things come together when we went back to the floor when in recognizing that it had been some time working just below the knee, that that kind of was what he needed to begin to bridge the transition into the, the second pool. And then he was better able to find his shapes. Um, so I don't think, ha- had we not recognized that it had been a while since we, while we were using variety and that we were using blocks and not the competition list and while we were at the knee and not above the knee, it, it took just a little bit more digging to, to find this out and, and communicating uh, around what he was experiencing. I think that's the fun part around training higher level lifters or more experienced lifters is that so much of their feedback will instruct your coaching and how much you can learn from them. Um, which kind of leads me to my, my next question uh, for you, Jason, is that in all of the sports that you've observed um, you know, in your time um, as a, you know, a strength coach and, and, and dating back to like early interning years, is do you see the coach-athlete relationship in weightlifting and, and how it happens when you consider the, the technical involvements and it being uh, an individual sport as being unique from other sports in terms of like the demand for communication and the demand for, you know, small considerations of programming relative to other sports. I do. I, I think of a, a look at it akin to, you know, like a sprinter. Um, I had an opportunity. Uh, my first position as a professor, um, you know, I am trying to learn as much as possible. I had spent some time with the track coach. Um, specialization was in sprint. And, you know, we talked quite a bit, learned quite a bit from him. Um, but, you know, he talked about his sprinters, um, you know, basically like some, you know, like an exotic car, like a Ferrari or whatever. He said, you know, when they run, they run really well, but if they get just a little knock in them, right, they can shake themselves to pieces. And, you know, uh, weightlifting is basically a horizontal sprint. And so, you know, it's the same type of approach. If, for lifters who've been lifting a while, um, if they get a little knock, in their technique or they're picking up a little bit of a nagging injury over time. Uh, absolutely. Um, there has to be good com- communication between the coach and the athlete. And I know, you know, there's different coaching styles. Uh, it's just kind of you know, pedal of the metal for some of the coaches, but um, I found over the years that I think most coaches have um, that you have to be in communication because, you know, any, any small little break in technique or in any nagging injury in the sport, um, can be you know, blown up within a cycle into something major. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, having that constant communication is absolutely necessary. And I know some of the, you know, I've worked with athletes in the past, um, you know, he had knee issues and I'd ask him occasionally about his knees and, it, you know, it made him angry. Like, every time he asked about my knees, you know, it, it makes me think of my knees and I'm like, well, that's fair. But if I don't know how your knees are feeling, then I can't adjust the squat work accordingly. Right. And so some athletes, do better and worse with that communication as well um, in terms of being able to provide it or 
you know, some of them have that kind of tough exterior approach, like you know, everything's fine and they're over there rubbing their wrists all the time. You know, you have to watch very carefully as a coach in order to get the information out of them a lot of times. So, um, and that's, that's back to that floor coaching, right? You got to spend time with them. Um, and that goes for any setting, whether it's weightlifting or strength conditioning. It's, you know, if you're not paying attention um, and watching your athletes' faces and watch them, how they react to things, you know, you can't make the adjustments on the fly. Um, and, and then I think the last question that I have before I'll, I'll see if Kyle has, has any final questions himself as we want to be considerate of your time is how would you describe your evolution um, as a competition coach? Um, is this something that just like your uh, – and, and for those who, who are listening um, and have realized perhaps that they've gotten themselves in the weed with a bit more of our theoretical – uh, um, or not theoretical, but a little more technical episodes. Um, mm-hmm. They might not be aware that you know uh, competition coaching involves a lot, uh, not just the athlete's psychology. That that's a very big part, but there's very much a chess match to be had uh, with counting attempts and understanding the the rules very uh, um, thoroughly. Um, but I, I was just wondering, Jason, if, if uh, you've had a um, you know an, an interesting time improving or navigating the landscape of competition coaching uh, from relative to those early days of just forming the uh, local weightlifting club. Sure. Yeah. The, uh, it's probably one of my favorite parts, to be honest, of weightlifting is. Um, it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it, it's nerve wracking as a coach. It's, um, you know, you, you have this athlete that's worked so hard and you don't want to make, you know, a decision for them that could cost them a medal or, um, you know, put them in a bad position. But, um, absolutely. And that's just experience too. Um, you know, if, if there's a coach, um, that's wanting to get into weightlifting, I would highly recommend they tag along with a more experienced coach at some of these competitions, learn some of the strategy. Um, you know, you see a lot of, uh, at least I do when, um, some of these bigger meets, there's athletes from clubs that are, are new and a lot of them bomb out. Right. Um, it's like a sea of red and not to say I haven't had athletes that bomb out cause I have, but um, there's a lot of you know, over aggressiveness sometimes when you get to these meets uh, and I've, I've had to fight that as well. The more I've coached is, you know, understanding the importance of those first lifts uh, for an athlete, um, the confidence and build, you know, and the, the platform it builds for them to have a good meet um, and finding those numbers that, you know, they're comfortable with on a bigger stage. And if they've been there before, if they haven't been there before, again, all these variables, uh, it's just exciting um, in terms of a coach trying to pull that all together for the athlete. So absolutely, you know, I've, I've had some things over the years that I've, I've tried and, um, you know, even odd numbers. I'll share one of my things. I, I love odd numbers. Like you see everybody open on the fives all the time, right? 165, 160, you know, open with a 163, right? It just throws everything off. And we won some medals because of these numbers where you have to make a coach stretch, right? For an eight kilo jump rather than a natural five. You know, we're talking about a bigger weight class, of course. Uh, uh-huh. So, you know, stuff like that you learn over time and, and just paying attention to the coaches. I, when I go to these national meets, I'll, um, I'll take a couple of marshalling sessions and just sit there and run the, you know, run the computer um, mm-hmm. just to watch some of the, the moves the coaches are making and some of the, the way they handle their athletes in the back. Um, and, you know, some of it's comical <laughs> as well. And I've made those mistakes, too. And, and some of it's, uh, you know, really informative, though, about how to, to better manage athletes. So and that's an experience thing, though. Um, you can read books on the on how to you know the rules and all these different things, but until you get in get in there and have to make a call, 
um, and have different situations where you have the best athlete and you put them out in front and have them make lifts or you're just, you know, trying to get some ones and twos on kilos, trying to just beat out a coach and you're nearing the end of your athlete's ability. Um, and that's just experience. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think that anyone who uh, perhaps is, is new to the sport as an athlete, and I would love if USA Weightlifting uh, or as, as, as a coach, I should say, I would love if USA Weightlifting created some kind of mentorship program where young coaches mm-hmm. could have these shadowing experiences at national meets because uh, what you have to understand is that a national meet is run very differently in terms of the energy and the strategies. Um, it's, it's, it's very different than just your typical local weightlifting meet. So if there was some kind of mentorship program for novel coaches, because otherwise, like you said, Jason, what's on the line is all of your athletes' hard work, which can just in a flash be gone based on one mistake that, that you might totally uh, um, uh, otherwise could have prevented with some uh, shadowing opportunities. Uh, I think that would be very powerful. And then I also think that people who are getting into weightlifting, who kind of, who enjoy it, and uh, maybe they've competed, maybe they haven't, I think it would be so um, fun for them to realize this whole other side of the sport, which exists on this stage, uh, because it, it, it is one that is uh, really kind of behind curtains and behind closed doors where you don't really know what it's like until you're there. But to be back there is one of the most electric and fun things. Uh, I agree. It's one of the most exciting parts of the sport. I wish I could share it somehow with other people. Yeah, it's a, it's, I have a picture of, um, you know, the numbers the athletes get, um, you know, when they, when they're at national meet. Um, and I use those many times to keep track of, you know, that's part of the fun is, um, you know, you got to watch these three athletes, right? So you're, you know, this is the way I manage. I write them down, write the numbers down. And so I always have an idea of what my athlete, you know, who they need to be, right? Who I need to watch and who, you know, I don't have to watch. Um, mm-hmm. But at U25 in the university, you have, this year, you had three different meets going on with juniors. And yeah. so, you know, managing, you know, two, basically three meets at one time for some of these athletes um, is incredibly exhilarating, I think. Uh, but it's a lot of work as well. And, you know, you know, you make one kilo call wrong uh, and doing some basic arithmetic sometimes can be, can be difficult when you're in the middle of a, of a competition, but, you know, to make a one kilo call that could cost your athlete a gold medal or not. Um, there's some excitement to that. There's some, you know, pressure as well, but I think that's also very, very exciting, but I agree on the mentoring program. I, I think the certification process is fantastic. It, it does at least, expose the uh, individuals that want to be coaches to the sport. And I think that's, that's very important. Um, but beyond that, for, you know, for people who want to really learn how to coach and program, and I know USA Weightlifting is working on this. Um, they have the, the coaching symposium now, which I think is fantastic. Um, but, you know, building on that now and moving towards um, not just a certification, but, you know, how do you actually write a program for different athletes at different levels and different body size uh, between the sexes, you know, there, there's so many variants that, um, can only be learned through coaching. That's just the way it is. Um, again, that bridging the gap idea, there used to be that old pyramid right on the bottom of the pyramid was science and our understanding of anatomy and physiology and the research literature and current topic. Um, but the top of that, that pyramid is, is the art and that's just learned through mentoring and, and experiences drawing upon the science, of course, but, um, you just have to get out there and do it. That's the only way to, to learn. One hundred percent. And I, I consider us to be very young 
in, in our um, experience and, and young in our actual like, coaching ages. Um, unfortunately, we've had athletes that have exposed us to these these platforms from uh, pretty early time where it was kind of like trial trial by fire. But uh, you know, to, to speak to this point, and then I'll turn over to Kyle with any concluding thoughts, is that you know if if you do have aspirations of trying to be the best coach that you possibly can. Uh, you know, you, you can have all the programming down, um, but if, if you don't, and, and, and like uh, Jason said, this takes time. If you don't know what it's like to have a lifter miss their first two snatches and then look to you and, and you're trying to figure out which page of the textbook says, here's a lifter missed their first two snatches at a national meet and here's how you respond, here's what you say, it, it really takes some time. Um, but I think that's what really ties the package on the whole of the mesocycle and the whole of the coach and the athlete's experiences and everyone involved. It, it, it's really a, um, a fantastic thing that, like you said, Jason, just takes a lot of time. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Kyle here with any closing thoughts or comments or questions. Well, I was going to tell you if I could just, you know, understanding your own personality too, as a coach, Yeah, you know, you'll watch uh, like Kevin Doherty, like jump out of the building. When it's, yeah. <laughs> right. But then you, you know, I'm more of a kind of a, I don't really have a lot of the emotion that those those coaches do, at least not in that way. Um, uh-huh. and that's okay I'm as a coach. You just have, like you said, when an athlete comes off and they've missed their first two snatches, you know how do you, you through your personality and their personality, how do you connect with them to get them to calm yeah. or maybe get their attention, um, you know, and get them riled back up again or whatever it may be in that moment that they're struggling with. But absolutely, that's that's the part of coaching that's enjoyable, and that's why I probably will never just be a professor. Uh, you know, I love being a professor, but it's, it doesn't have that application piece. You know, I want to get out there and do it, not just read about it. Um, and so for young coaches, absolutely read about it first, but you have to get out there and learn how to apply it. And that's just, you just got to do it. That's the only way to learn. Awesome. Huh? No, I, I think I'm good. I think that's a, a perfect way to, to end it. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Jason. I appreciate it. I mean, anytime. All right. Well, uh, Jason, we will link to where people can find more about you uh, and what you're doing with Renaissance Periodization in the show notes. And uh, again, and, and is there anything you would like to oh, yeah, uh, where promote people can or talk about, Jason? See you or, or anything that you guys have in the works? Uh, nothing right now. Um, but, you know, people are more welcome to contact me with, with questions through my uh, Instagram page or uh, whatever maybe I'm happy to answer. And uh, hopefully this... Uh, this podcast was coherent from me. That's always a, a hope and dream. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> we, we really appreciate the time and, and we hope you have a great rest of your day. You too as well. <laughs>